Hello and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash. And my name's Adam. Adam, I'm going to tell you a story. I like stories. Uh, what if I told you this story has cocaine, fairies, Harry Houdini, speaking to the dead, bare knuckle boxing, crocodile shooting, two wars, and a healthy dose of turn of the century misogyny? I would say that that sounded like an awful lot to try and cram into a single story. <laughs> or, or a new episode of Foul Papers, maybe. <laughs> um, it's the life of Arthur Conan Doyle. Who? Arthur Conan Doyle. I, I don't know the name. Well, you came to the right podcast, because today we're doing something <laughs> a little bit different. We're not talking about a book, per se. Um, about he did a... write some books as he well. He did write I left some books? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Talking about a man. We're talking about a man. So, 160 years ago, today... Today, uh, yeah. For the, this is the first time the podcast has been remotely on time. On time, <laughs> um, round just round the corner from where we are sitting right now. Just, just next, just, up, up, just next just to that road. Tesco. Just, just across the road from that Tesco is a statue. Well, there's a not a statue. Oh, there was. There's a little plaque. There's a little plaque yeah. that says there was a statue. There's a plaque, and across the road, there's a pub. Yeah, there's a statue of a giraffe, but as far as we know, he was Unrelated. humanoid. <laughs> Um, for, for, for posterity, I do know who Arthur Conan Doyle is. Oh, good. I just think it's funny that he is such a ubiquitous author name mm. that not knowing who he is is funny. Everybody knows who Arthur Conan Doyle is and everybody knew what he wrote. Yeah, uh, but his life was so crammed, almost comically crammed with stuff that uh, he's a bit of a mystery really hmm. i i think you know him a little bit more than i do i've been reading a biography of him recently to swat up for this yeah. and i was a and i was a teenage obsessive yeah I, so i wasn't a teenage obsessive really and i as i was saying to you just before we started i blame our old friend raymond chandler for that you blame a lot of things on raymond chandler oh no i don't i you blame I your raymond job chandler. job failure life failures <laughs> everything is just relationship breakdowns too much just raymond blame chandler. them blame them directly on raymond chandler yeah well at the age where everyone starts reading things like Sherlock Holmes. The age where everyone starts blaming things on Raymond Chandler. <laughs> I started blaming Raymond Chandler. No, I started reading Raymond Chandler and quickly got a lot more... In- see, I didn't really read much detective see, stuff. I, I found space in my heart for both. I really enjoyed Raymond Chandler and Conan Doyle. Yeah, well, you're more accommodating. You've got a bigger heart. Got a bigger heart. I think, no, most of my heart was taken up with science fiction quite quickly. That's fair. As a well. Arthur Conan Doyle also managed to find time to write true, some science yeah. fiction as well. Well, funnily enough, Lost World, which we'll get onto a bit later, that was probably one of the ones that really stuck out. But now I was reading Philip K. Dick, people like that, yeah. and um, Chandler, both of whom we definitely need to do on the podcast. We've been talking enough about doing Chandler for ages. We will, and we'll, and do, you it, like and we'll do it well. Philip, you're a big... I, I like Philip K. Dick. You're a big dickhead, I, right? I love, I love Dick. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that... I like, I like Philip K. Dick... He's he's about as different a writer to Arthur Conan Doyle as you can possibly yeah. imagine. Yeah. Well, because well, productive, productive. But Philip K. Dick never a bit spiritual. Bit spiritual. But the only the, one of the big problems I had with Philip K. Dick was story resolution, mm. where he seemed to be so overflowing with ideas, he would rattle through one, not finish it, and then go straight on to the next one because he had so many good ideas. Mm. But I think with Conan Doyle, each little each little nugget is self contained. You could actually pick up and read. Almost any of the Sherlock Holmes stories without any context well, yeah. about Sherlock Holmes. But that uh, that was quite an a bit of clever work of enterprise on his part. Well, yeah, well he um he like he, others he, is a a periodical publisher. He published in the Strand. So that's right. And he before that he wanted to write long form fiction mm-hmm. and. Uh, or if it was serialised, he, he, he conceived of it as something with an evolving storyline where people would keep in mm. touch. But he realised there was a better, better, better market for writing self-contained stories, even if they had the same characters. Yeah, and I think, you know, we can get into this later, but that led to his eventual great dislike of the Sherlock Holmes character. I think that was a bit conflicted. I think he, depending on the day, yeah. he either hated being the man who wrote Sherlock Holmes or just was so weary of it. But then, I, d- I don't know, his, his biography flitted between things like that and not being able to resist telling a Sherlock Holmes story to a, a child he encountered. Yeah. You know, so I think I think there was, a, yeah. Well, speaking of children. Mixed. Let's begin with his childhood. Sorry, I didn't forget, I didn't quite finish saying that 
The reason we're doing it today is 160 years ago today. Oh, yeah. He was born just around the corner from just where we the are corner. now. Just around the corner. And now there's a pub there. Yeah, well, that's opposite the Conan Doyle, which that, that explained that for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's just next to the Tesco, so that must have been his, the his local when beside he was the, um, Beside the tram station. Uh, yeah, beside the tram station. Well, I've pretty much given away where I live now. There's, there's, there's a lot of houses around here. Yeah, that's true, yeah. There's a lot of round the corners. <laughs> okay, so he's born in Edinburgh. Our yes. first thing I wanted to um, dwell on for a bit is just how fucking awful Edinburgh sounds. Well, we we, in the 19th we got century. we got a little glimpse of that with Boswell and Johnson we did. about just how horrible it smelt and just how awful the people were to them. There was the stink of effluent. Yep. Which, what what was their what was their phrase? The 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 streets with their it was something like it was something about how rich bad. with effluvia. Yeah, it was. Um, they, they they were they were assaulted by the effluvia. That was it. Assaulted by effluvia. Was because at that point there was still a. The, Whereas now the, it's the, the smell the, of yeah. the the whiskey. Well, brewing. the thing is, there was the um, it's it, it's the beer. It's the it's the Dukas. Distillery, the bar. Oh, I the, thought it was whiskey. No, it's not whiskey. It's um, it that's the smell of yeast. So I am English. I don't, I don't know how this works. <laughs> this whole place. It's um, old 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 is what ah. they called Edinburgh because it smelled so badly of breweries. Yeah, I knew old Ricky there. And there was so you had the you had the joint smells of the recently drained lock that is where Prince Street Gardens is now, mm. with just the shit in the streets and the smell of breweries. If the wind is blowing from the west. Will mm. go over the entire city. Yeah, but I'm assuming it was a lot worse back then than it is now. I think they would have longed for the smell of some beer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there was there was a very poor sewer system. Yes. Uh, disease was rife. I'm almost obligated to make the stand-up joke. So you know, it sounds like Glasgow 2019. <laughs> That's a very see. I think that's an English stand-up joke. That is an English stand. Yeah, it's just basically slag off the next town along whatever the town is. And if you're in that town, you the slag next off, night, the, one slag off the one you were just in. So well, it's terrible. Well, I think that that is, you know, this that's that's another Daisy Chain thing. But spoiler alert: Conan Doyle gets into medicine. I think one of the reasons yeah. that Edinburgh was such a hub for medicine was that there was a ready testing populace of ill and diseased and a lot of corpses. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, he he didn't quite become involved, but he 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 wrote about Burke and Hare. I think there there is a, there's a significant amount of time between that, but it would have been people who was oh yeah, it's long, it's long done. But, but pe- uh, yeah. pe- people who were living and working would have had memories yeah. of maybe people who had been there. Yeah. So we're only like a generation removed. From- there's also a Ripper connection coming up, and whilst we're doing connections to former podcasts and uh if you haven't listened to our podcasts on pickwick papers that's why we were mentioning uh burke and hare but also in the pickwick papers we talked with stephen jarvis about cartoonists Mm. and whilst he's still a kid it makes sense to talk about his grandfather john doyle yeah who was a cartoonist who i want to say his pseudonym was hb but i might be just thinking that because it's a pencil but it, it was a it's an h something anyway he um he was a contemporary with do you remember james gilray yes. and crookshank yep he was with all that crowd um but he worked uh i think they all worked under a pseudonym but he worked certainly worked under a pseudonym and he kept would he have been famous people. enough so that conan doyle not not would have been associated with him mm. was he that level of famous this guy well the impression i got is that the story of conan doyle's father is quite a sad one Okay. He moved up to Edinburgh from London, okay. um, quickly became a full-blown alcoholic. That does uh, tend to happen when you when you, When you move to Edinburgh, yeah. Um, and you, then you start doing a literary podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was a, a talented um, painter of watercolours. Okay. Uh, an artist, was he an artistic Charles family? Charles Doyle. Okay. Very artistic family. And that, but then all of his brothers... Uh, and then his father, the cartoonist, they all seem to have very successful lives in London, artistic, socialite sort of lives. Okay. And Arthur Arthur Conan would, would grow up and not necessarily emulate them, but certainly be impressed by them, sure. whereas his own father was a subject of quite a lot of pain and shame. Okay. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that later, shall we? That, I just wanted to mention that other link that we always keep so, finding yeah. with um, well, former podcasts. Who who isn't born in Edinburgh? It just seems to be the fashionable thing. Everyone's born in Edinburgh, it seems. Yeah, 
let's move on with his childhood. He goes to uh, his mum, it seems to be a, a sort of angel, mm-hmm. really, in his early life, who has great ambitions for him, even though that they're not in great circumstances. And her husband is a alcoholic and increasingly mentally ill, painter, going, going downhill painter, yeah. fast. Um, but she gets enough money together to send him to Stonyhurst in Lancashire. Okay. Where I, we didn't really need to talk about Stonyhurst in Lancashire, except I wanted to paint one portrait of you. He got in trouble because, among other boys, and this was when he was between the ages of 10 and 13, he got caught smoking a pipe. <laughs> and I just, how, I just love the image of a schoolboy smoking a pipe. a pipe behind the bins. It just changes the whole... <laughs> you know. Um, no, no, no dirty rollies for Arthur Conan Doyle. No, uh, but he was, yeah, a bright student, um, disliked by his masters because he didn't really like the religious stuff. Precocious. A theme that would uh, continue throughout the rest of his life. Yes. Uh, he ends up at Edinburgh University. Yep, comes back. Where a couple of very crucial things happens. He st- starts studying medicine. Mm-hmm. I think I might have chronologically skipped out a few things, but we're going to cover them in a bit. Uh, he meets a couple of influential professors, one of which is Professor Balfour, who is descended from the Balfour who was the founder of the Botanical Gardens. Yes. Um, and he was the professor of botany, so he was obviously stayed on track um, yep. as a family. The other one he meets is Joseph Bell, yes. who you might have heard of. I have heard of Joseph and Bell. And any Arthur Conan Doyle aficionados, or more particularly Sherlock Holmes aficionados, certainly will have, because this is the man who is alleged to be the model for Sherlock, for Sherlock Holmes. And this is a common theme between all of Conan Doyle's characters, where they are based in whole or in part on one or several people conflated into one individual. Yeah. Of just people that he knew, people he was impressed by, people who had traits that he admired. Yeah, would be or didn't. Into, or didn't, would be rolled into characters that he wrote. Yeah. I'm going to be. I'm really sorry. I'm going to ask you to pass me that book that's just next to the laptop and cut out any um, scrabbly noises that are oh, about to happen because this is my first quote. Oh, this one. It's the yeah, the big Arthur Conan Doyle one. The Doctor and the Detective: A Biography of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle by Martin Booth. Yep, that's the main source of my research. Um, but here is this is quite a f- anyone who's a big Sherlock fan has probably heard this, but this is an example of um, Joseph Bell's observational powers when uh, when confronted with a new patient. In one of his best cases, and this is Arthur Conan Doyle speaking, in one of his best cases, he said to a civilian patient, well, my man, you've served in the army. Aye, sir. Not long discharged. Aye, sir. A Highland regiment. Aye, sir. A non-com officer. Aye, sir. Stationed at Barbados. Aye, sir. You see, gentlemen, he will explain, the man was a respectful man, but he did not remove his hat. They do not in the army, but he would have learned civilian ways when it ha- had he been long discharged. He has an air of authority, and he is obviously Scottish. Oh, I should have done a Scottish accent. So. Um, as to Barbados, his complaint is elephantiasis, which is elephantiasis, sorry, which is West Indian and not British. Oh. So little Sherlock Holmesian flair there. So this is that is riff. an example of deductive reasoning. Yeah, which I guess Conan Doyle would become. Elephantitis, though, isn't that when is that, you know when your limbs swell up and you? Well, itis, itis is a swelling. Isn't yeah, it? itis is a swelling condition, and elephant would mean larger. So yeah, yeah, larger. I thought that was pretty larger. extreme. I thought of all those little things he's noticing, surely he's not no. You know, the big thing would be like also your arm is uh, fucking massive, the size of a of a bus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think that that I I don't know how I don't know how controversial it is that he based. Him on Bell. Well, Bell later very modestly said, oh, you know, he made a little of a lot and everything, and uh-huh. uh, I'm not quite like that. But people got so obsessed uh, with the idea of Joseph Bell being the model for Sherlock Holmes that they'd start to write to him as with their Sherlock problems. Holmes with their problems. Yeah. And so much so that he, he, he was asked, along with someone else, to start investigating the Ripper case, which is in recent memory, I think 1888. Yeah. And he and another person came to a conclusion which, just to entice ripper, ripperologists, um, has never been revealed to the public. I'm assuming, because there were several ripper theories that they were a member of the royal family or the nobility, and it Maybe would have it been embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, but he, he, he was 
basically associated with Sherlock Holmes for the rest of his life and seems to, certainly according to the biography I've read, take it in pretty good humour. Yeah. Unlike Arthur Conan Doyle, sometimes. <laughs> um, let's get out of Edinburgh and uh, let's. I'll give you some of his ridiculous exploits. Let's hear them. This is a this is a classic polymath, um, more than a polymath, really. It was this kind of thing of wanting to be a man of science, a man of letters, a man of action, all at once. Here is, I think, the first connection that I am going to draw between Conan Doyle and Jules Verne, hmm. where I think Arthur Conan Doyle based himself off of these men of action and science that he admitted to being great fans of throughout his life. Vern characters or Vern? Vern characters. Okay. Where I think that... I don't know if the people that Vern based his characters off existed. These... Like, Professor Challenger is a man of science who possesses great physical strength, who is unquestionably the smartest person in any room. He's like a sort of... He's a god, mm. basically. And I think that... I don't think it would be too far to assume that Conan Doyle aspired to something like that based on all of the things that he tried and did and was good at as well. Yeah. So. I mean, it almost looks like he was just never... It almost looks like he was quite Mr. Toady yeah. in terms of like picking up hobbies. Um, he goes way... I can't remember if this comes in between university or not. I have a feeling it does. But he goes whaling on another connection to whaling to um, our uh, former podcasts on a ship called the Hope in 1880 as a ship's doctor. He became became unquestionably and sort of strangely attached to harpoons. Couldn't, well, yes. couldn't stop killing. Yes, really. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he went as a ship's doctor, but he proved such a zealous and talented harpooner that the captain offered him double wages if he wanted to come back next time and be <laughs> both Doctor and Harpooner. So Jeez. there's a little um, nod to Ned Land there. Ned that Land. Maybe that, that's why I asked, uh, you know, Vern characters. Yeah. So you're, you're bang on. The, these are not chronological, but just to give you a, a sense just of the lay variety. On, lay on me. He went crocodile hunting in Lagos. Oh, yeah. Uh, he also nearly avoided, narrowly avoided being attacked by a shark. He helped found Portsmouth Football Club. And in one of my favourite details, he was a goalkeeper. Okay. Under his own name. But he played as a defender under a pseudonym. That's so... Like, at the same time? Well, not in the same game, I'm As in he would... He'd he'd sort of (laughs) throw the gloves off, change jerseys. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's me now. Arthur Ronaldo. What was yeah? What, what, what was his pseudonym as a I defender? Th- I think it was very disappointing. It was like A. Smith. It wasn't just like a hilarious anagram of his name. No. Well, it would be funny if it was Ronaldo or Conan Arthur Doyle. Yeah, Conan Arthur Doyle. Oh, that's the other thing. So people have argued whether he's called Arthur Conan Doyle or Arthur Conan Doyle for well, ages. E- well, either way, his middle name is Ignatius. His middle name is Ignatius, but. Um, Apparently, he, his surname is Doyle, okay. and Conan was taken for... Uh, he has a relative, I think, was called Michael Conan, okay. or something like that. But um, he quite cannily didn't think he sounded too impressive, being known as Mr. Doyle. It's a good, it's a good pseudonym. So, so he kept up Conan Doyle, That's and fair. then the rest of his family have always been the Conan Doyles. Okay. Oh, we should say, you know, he's... Whilst he's entering the medical profession, he's also writing. Yes, well, he, he wrote um, Study in Scarlet when he was 28. Yeah, uh, w- which did okay. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it, it was, I don't think it exploded anyone. Can, so can, can, continue know. with your mental list of his mental things. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go up right to the end of his life and then we'll, we'll go back to the beginning of okay. his writing career, if you like. So uh, he founded Port- Portsmouth. And by the way, this is a very short list. I had to cut it down because it's just, it goes on and fucking on with him. Um, he, oh, he wrote in 1883, um, Life and Death in the Blood, which was a, an essay on, it was a medical essay mm-hmm. in which, but it, but it was a bit, it wasn't fictionalized, but it had a lot of creative flair. Okay. Because he asked the reader to imagine themselves shrunk down and shot into a bloodstream. It was a really influential essay, and it provided the basis for Fantastic Voyage, the film, 
which is a fantastic film. It's a fantastic film, and it's fantastic that his his non-fiction rating inspired that. Yeah, there I know. Um, he got into loads of fights. At one point, he is supporting the... I mean, he runs for MP a couple of times, but he's... In Edinburgh? Uh, in Edinburgh, yeah, he gets heckled, which is okay. an- another great Edinburgh tradition to, to knock off, yeah. you know, getting heckled. Um, but he is supporting a future Prime Minister, Arthur Balfour, no relation to that, yeah. the botanist, I don't think. Um, and he ends up collaring some of the hecklers of <laughs> him and he gets into a fight. And just the detail that I loved was that he ended up getting his top hat kicked in. Um, is, that, is that a euphemism? Oh, I hope not. I don't even know what that would be. Would that be having his dick kicked in? Let's not dwell on it. <laughs> um he experimented on himself with various okay. drugs. That was, I think, that, that was a because pretty, was com- that was was pretty common, common practice. He ends up for a while shacked up with this really unhinged doctor called Bud, who's a fraud and is um, pushing Doctor Bud's blood tonic, which is just garbage, but it's meant to thin. Doctor Bud's blood. Doctor Bud's blood tonic. Um, but the uh, what he th- this guy's just basically a lunatic. And he's another model for various characters throughout Well, Doyle. I think Conan Doyle spent a lot of time being hooked in by quacks and hoax artists. Yeah, but the, thing, the other thing that impresses you about the time is that all, all the things he gets in, interested in later, like spiritualism and, and banjo playing and learning Cornish and all these like random <laughs> things, it gives you... He, he's not as eccentric as he sounds at first look because all of these people, fr- frankly, like quite well-off people, uh-huh. are just pursuing these quite esoteric hobbies. So well, this guy, who admittedly is a lunatic, when he first turns up to his practice, I should have said, he's a doctor and he invites Arthur Conan Doyle sure. to come and join him somewhere down south, um, south of England. Uh, he, the thing he's working on when Arthur Conan Doyle rocks up is a way to deflect cannon fire with magnets. And what... Conan Doyle witnessed was in early stages of these experiments. I suspect him the, firing cannons at things. the early and final. No, with a gun, basically firing a gun at a big magnet that he'd got and working out how long it would take. Or I'm guessing how, how strong big a magnet, a magnet he needs before he can do it well, with I think a cannonball. This is there existed a. It's like a wacky racist yeah. ploy. <laughs> I think I'm not going to say it's a profession, but there existed a, a thing, which is being being a gentleman adventurer. Yeah, where you were so rich. And so bored that you had to do these things for just something to do. Yeah. Like you would get an idea and you would have the actually have the resources to start doing this stuff. Yeah. Like they'd be down drinking at the club and they'd be like, how big a magnet do you think you need to push this bullet away? Yeah. And then that would devolve into six months years of and years of experimentation yeah. we should say though he he wasn't a rich man, Arthur Conan Doyle, and, and, or no. an idle man for a long, long time. I don't think he was ever an idle man, but he certainly he wasn't rich uh, until well into the Sherlock Holmes days. So, well, should we talk about the first flashpoint of his success then? Go for it. Well, which, what what do you have as that? Well, he um, so he writes the first Sherlock Holmes story, and it's fairly well received, but it doesn't. Yeah, it's decent. It, it doesn't blow him into the public consciousness. He writes a bunch of literary novels yeah. and he considers a lot of the shorter stuff he's sending off as kind of pulp yeah. including Sherlock Holmes um, and his novels uh, I think the first couple get rejected mm-hmm. and then he does have one published and it does yeah, yeah. Um, so nothing that spectacular the, the, the clinch point comes when uh, in 1889 he's invited to a dinner at the Langham Hotel with the published publisher of i think it's an american magazine called lippincott's monthly magazine it's a dinner between three people have you heard about this no i don't it's know a dinner between all. three people so it's the publisher yeah arthur conan doyle and oscar wilde for fuck's sake and the result is this guy basically says you two are terrific and will pay you much more than you're getting for these mm-hmm. random little magazine short story things you're getting published every now and again the result of which was the second Sherlock Holmes story, Sign of the Four, yep. and the picture of Dorian Gray. So this this one dinner launched the careers of two of the great men of letters. Well, well with, with Oscar Wilde, I think it's a bit different because he'd sort of launched himself as a personality. Well, I think... Already. Oscar Wilde was the first example of 
famous for being famous. I mean, the contrast couldn't be more extreme. Oscar yes. Wilde, I think by... I'm not quite sure, but it wasn't long after this, if it was after, that he was doing tours of America. Um, I, I think he must have released some poetry by this point. Oh. And he was a well-known... I mean, he wore his ridiculous... Not ridiculous, but like yes. for the times. Um, flamboyant. Flamboyant. And his, and his witticisms and his... Yeah. yeah. Whereas Arthur Conan Doyle was trying to be a doctor in Portsmouth. Yeah. You know, the, the very, very different lives. Um, Portsmouth, cultural capital of the world. Although just as a little hook for what we'll get onto later, Arthur Conan Doyle would later summon the ghost of Wilde. <laughs> that sounds like something he would do. In a seance, yeah. So... Um, wasn't without his quirks, Arthur. Uh, what were we talking? Oh, yes. Yeah. So the first th- that was the first sort of launch yes. into sign of the four literary stardom is that that got published and it went huge. Well, and then in I forget who does the illustrations, but most a man called um, is he a New Zealander. I can't remember. I think I think the story goes that he asked to. To have the illustrations done by a man called Walter Paget, and it, and he accidentally sent the letter to his brother, who I think is called Sydney, uh-huh. and Sydney ended up doing it because the the illustrations that were used in the Strand magazine are still the ones you will get in any copy of yeah Sherlock Holmes you will pick up today. So they're as important a part of the Holmes mythos as the words, but it's the, I think the, the um the character the caricature of Holmes evolves slowly and then there's the deer stalker and the great coat and the magnifying glass well the deer stalker came along i think when the first performance of it came out i think because i think it appears in an illustration before it's ever okay fair enough. it appears in an illustration without any description of him wearing that hat in the woods oh no sorry i'm confusing it with the pipe okay the pipe came that big curving long thing that curved down under the chin Uh because the first actor who I think was called Gillette, mm-hmm. an American, um, which is weird to think of. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes first got its premiere in America. Uh, he just realised that it was very, very hard to talk with a normal pipe in your mouth. Whereas if you had that one that sort of hooked into the side of your mouth you and came down, yeah. you could talk fine. But I think with the hat, as part of the image, it never it was never referenced in the words mm. until it was drawn in a caricature and then it became part of the character yeah because i think the way the hat's referred to is got n- nothing like nothing a, deerstalkery it's something like a cloth cap or something but now in a modern understanding of sherlock holmes the two are inseparable yeah but this idea of strand publishing these stories with a recognizable character who's it's almost like almost like the marvel movies where you would have interweaving storylines between the bits mm. you would be able to dip in and out whenever you like. But if you read all of them, there would be characters and themes that would reoccur. You'd have foreshadowing of things that were going to happen. Like the big Moriarty Holmes showdown mm. is teased several times in earlier ones with people he captures basically just going like, oh, Moriarty's going to get you. Mm. Stuff like that, where there was... I think in maybe Dickens didn't hadn't spiderwebbed or planned where his stories were going from the get-go. But I always got the impression that Conan Doyle really did, yeah. Because I wasn't quite sure. I mean, it, it seems like he, uh, once the success of, I mean, he worked happily at Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes. It seemed for quite a long time before he started thinking, "I really want to be do other things. I want to write." But I think he always knew. I always got the impression reading them when I was younger that they were building towards something. Yeah, that they were good in isolation, but they were better together. Yeah. That was the impression I got was reading them as a collection. And I think that was how you're supposed to feel if you were reading them on a weekly release basis. You know? Yeah, because I think early on he forgets a few things. I yeah. think like Watson's Watson has a leg wound that moves to his shoulder or the other way around. Something like that, yeah. Um, but then later he starts to develop it. One thing that develops um, is he ends up being the first author, I think, to destru- describe a cocaine addict. Yes. Because when it, he first starts casually referring to uh, Sherlock Holmes... Uh, injecting cocaine yeah well Sherlock Holmes self self-medicator yeah but at the time uh, there, there was nothing that scandalous about that uh, that it was something to make him seem like quite a sophisticated uh, yeah. artistic sort of type well there's, there's there's one episode where 
Watson has to basically drag him kicking and screaming out of an opium den. Yeah. But later on, when people get more familiar with the uh, hardships of a cocaine addict, Watson suddenly becomes harder and and Sherlock Holmes becomes a bit more, uh, I don't know, um, regretful about it. Is there a more famous literary character than Sherlock Holmes? Good question. I suppose Harry Potter. Out with this century then, pre-21st century, is he the single most identifiable literary creation? Yeah, I think the word identifiable is key. Once you once you picture him, yes. you can't I don't think you can picture another iconic literary character because you could go back to the greeks yeah but but who would recognize or rather identify odysseus maybe some people who knew what kind of helmet he had then you're just going back to what kind of hat you were wearing again no how many people could identify odysseus by his helmet (laughs) (laughs) the cyclops he's pretty identifiable (laughs) but i think that conan doyle succeeded whether he was intending to or not in creating one of the first literary icons. Mm. One that has endured to this day as tourists who visit London, tourists who visit Edinburgh will be on the hunt for Sherlock Holmes stuff. Yeah. They'll want to see his house. They'll want to see, you know, places that are described in the stories. They'll want to go to Baker Street. They'll want to go to Scotland Yard. They'll want to go to St. Bart's. Like all of these places that appear in the stories have become pilgrimages for people who have like me, grown up on the stories. Yeah, and people were convinced it was real and wrote to Conan Doyle addressing yeah. it to Sherlock Holmes, not just Joseph Bell, but he was yeah. contacted and asked to solve mysteries. He would. Which afterwards. he would attempt to solve. Yeah, but people tried to visit 20, uh, 200, 20, is it 221B, B, B Baker Street. Uh, people would apply as a housekeeper to replace... Um, Mrs. Hudson. Mrs. Hudson. Uh, people would address letters to Watson too. Uh, and there was th- this whole... It seems like London in the later 19th century was defined by Sherlock Holmes. How T.S. Eliot yeah. said something like, uh, the London of Sherlock Holmes is, um, or rather the 19th century through Sherlock Holmes is always nostalgic, never silly, yeah. which I thought was an odd... Well, that, that was what I was about to say. How accurate a description of 19th century London do you get from reading Sherlock Holmes? Um, well, according to Martin Booth, who wrote the biography uh-huh. I read, quite an accurate description, and quite an accurate description of not just London, but the rest of England. Because I would, I would dare to say that more people have read Sherlock Holmes than people have read general histories of 19th century London. Oh, God, yeah. I think a lot of people's ideas of what that world would be like, like T.S. Eliot says there, it would be informed by Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And the bare knuckle boxing and the docks another thing he was really criminal underworlds in. yep pugilism yeah but i worried I, when bare, bare knuckle boxing was outlawed because it, it might lead to effeminacy <laughs> the did. only thing the only thing stopping men from becoming effeminate was beating the ever-loving shit out of each other with their yeah, bare hands. without gloves without gloves that was the important part yeah but i do think that he created a a, a sort of a picture an indelible picture of a time yeah through a character yeah which has endured and i think that movements like people are really into do you know what steampunk is yeah yeah like a sort of protract- not that old like, come on <laughs> you asked me who you asked me if i knew who conan Doyle was earlier no you said <laughs> you said, you said you i didn't did know it. who he was yeah but you know the idea of a of a future that never moved on from conan doyle time yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Well, as w- interestingly, um, once uh, there was a hiatus in the Sherlock Holmes canon. When he came back, we were well into the twentieth century, yes. and there was a th- serious threat of war. Sherlock Holmes remained in the latter stages of the nineteenth, uh, away from those yeah. much scarier times. Well, when he actually died, Sherlock Holmes, which uh, Arthur Conan Doyle had had several run-ups at doing and yeah. been cancelled by. Certainly, his publishers, and but also his outrage. mother. Oh yeah, um, just don't, don't. What you're doing? Don't kill the golden goose, kind of thing. Um, but when he did, he got uh, hate mail. 
Yep. People started wearing black armbands in the street <laughs> because Sherlock Holmes had died. Yeah. And uh, there was one reference in this in this biography to a woman who'd written to him, um, and her her letter just opened. You brute. <laughs> <laughs> is this is is this so? This is the death that occurs when he's an old man. Yeah. Yeah, when he's keeping bees. No, no, no. Sorry, no. When he falls down the waterfall. Oh, so this is this this is the first death. The first death. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and people were writing in saying reverse this, change this. Well, round. I think I think which that, made me yeah. think because uh, in the news recently, there's just been all this stuff about people petitioning Game of Thrones writers to redo the last to season. to redo the last season like that ever works. Well, yeah, it's not like it's not like it's not like Colin Doyle ever brought Holmes back. He was over the falls, and then that was it. And never wrote another, never wrote another word. I, how do you think about that as a as a climax of a story? Because I think that's one of the the best. I haven't read still. it. Still, you've never read the Reichenbach Falls. No. How much Holmes have you read? Not very much. I've read the first one, the Scarlet. Study in Scarlet, the Study in Scarlet, and Sign of the Four, and I've read Hand of the Baskervilles. Three of the best And I've ones. read a couple of short stories. Some weird ones like The Speckled Band. Where yeah. I've read fight, The Speckled Band. Holmes with, fights a snake. With a snake, yeah. Which he um, apparently at one point, just to give you a sense of his diffidence towards, um, or indifference rather, towards Holmes, he was once asked, like, what's your favourite Sherlock Holmes story? And he couldn't even remember the title. So he just went, uh, the one with the snake. <laughs> <laughs> the... um. My personal favourite one is The Engineer's Thumb. Okay. Which is a story that I that Holmes and Watson just hear. A man comes into Holmes's house and just tells him a story. Holmes doesn't go anywhere or do anything. You just listen to this man's story. Really? And it's great. But I think some of the best stories are the ones... I can't remember what it's called, but there's one where a man runs into the office, screams, and then drops dead. And then Holmes solves the entire case just by examining his body before the police arrive. Just in the office. Just in the office. Well, should we make a pledge now? Yep. We're definitely going to do a Sherlock Holmes at some point. We are. I feel, yeah. I feel like, and if you, if you don't stop me now, I'm just going to talk about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, well, we'll get off Sherlock Holmes because we do want to do some um, writing. About the man. You yep. can email if you've got any particular um, uh, choice Sherlock Holmes. I will, I'm, I will. I'm considering maybe we should do a kind of crimey season. Because there's that Raymond Chandler season. thing we've been talking about for ages. I've just had a really good idea, but I'll talk to you about that later. Okay, this is off podcast stuff, okay. not, not for the... Do you want to just tell you what the idea is then? Okay, well, I'll delete it later. Yeah. We definitely won't leave this in. Then, yeah. if, if you don't stop me talking about Sherlock Holmes now, I will continue to talk about it. So let's leave Sherlock. Yeah. Um, it does very well for him, let's say. Uh, it is. He returns to it, it sounds like in the latter stages of his life, uh, he returns to it mainly for the cash to fund his spiritualism, really. Yeah. Um, but that's not to say that he didn't sort of have this quite mixed relationship to the character. Yeah, so in, I think in, in between him writing Sherlock Holmes and him reaching the end of the road there on spiritualism, a lot happens. He becomes yeah. fully qualified doctor and starts practicing. Yeah, so do you want to hear a few more um, hobbies? Please, please do. He is the first Englishman to cross section of the Alps on skis. I thought you were going to say something ridiculous like a bicycle. He does it on skis and um, wearing uh, tweed knickerbockers. Um, why, why would he wear anything else? And he, he predicts that, oh, some, this is before skiing is a big thing, but yeah. he predicts, oh, sometime, very soon in the, in the season of March and April, hundreds of Englishmen will come here for the ski season. <laughs> He was quite right. Completely correct, yeah. Uh, he runs for MP twice, I mentioned that. He uh, he volunteers to serve in the Boer War. Yeah. Um, he's a bit old at that stage. I think he's in his at least his late 30s. He's too old. Yeah. Um, but he, he ends up going there anyway as an army doctor. Yeah. Uh, writes about it, pisses off the military, advises, yeah. you know, it's time to ditch all these silly outfits and will that, will, that, will, will that be Brigadier Gerard then? Uh, I'm not sure. Water, Bri- no, Brigadier no, Gerard's Napoleonic. Napoleonic, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, he writes historical fiction. He writes loads of historical fiction, and he's really much prouder of that, I yeah. think, than a lot of his his more popular stuff now. Uh, just another random one. He defends his own dog in court. <laughs> okay. Uh, do I need to say any more? No, I don't even need to know the context. The just yeah. keep going. Uh, he's also at the cutting edge of photography. Uh, yes. Uh, well, really young. Scotland. 
known for inventing everything, was at the cutting edge of photography. The, yeah. um, they were deep frying cameras by they were deep 1880, frying ca- weren't they? Well, I think they were deep frying them before they even knew what they did. <laughs> but I think there was, I can, can never remember his name, but Daguerre, I think, was buoyed up by the popular support of one particularly eccentric Scottish estate owner, I think, who just gave him lots of resources and a place to do his photography and development. Oh, okay. Might have been Daguerre, might have been another one. Someone who developed a very particular style of photography was allowed to do it. Yeah. In Scotland. Well, photography had been knocking around for a while by the time Conan Doyle was a young man, but yeah. he was still sort of kind of at the cutting edge, even in having a camera. And he was yeah. very proud of having a camera. He took photos of crocodiles and stuff when he was in um, Africa and all of this. Uh, it, it, one slightly dodgy episode, he wanted to take a photo of uh, native Africans in order to show them how hideous they were. Oh well, that that definitely does sound like rather like 19th his relationship, men. yeah, rather like his relationship with women, his relationship with uh, black indigenous people, populations, yeah, yeah, was kind of a bit mixed. Like he 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 was all for the empowerment of women, yeah. but completely against suffrage. Well, here's so here's other interesting things in Professor Challenger in the Lost in the Lost World. There is a character who is. He's kind of like a Ned Land figure mm. who is famed for having ended slavery in the Amazon. And he's got notches in his guns to show how many slavers he's killed. Mm. And that suggests an anti-slavery. Yeah, thing. I think he was anti-slavery. He, he... But then in the... Oh, is it Sign of the... It's not Sign of the Four. What was the one... But he, his attitude oh. was, in that 19th century way, quite paternalistic. Yes. Um, paternalistic is the right word. So he was all for educating them and teach them how to be... But there's, there's one of the stories that ends with a chase down the Thames by boat. Mm. One of the antagonists in that is a sort of character of a stunted pygmy yeah. who jabbers and shoots blow darts. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very two very different looks on an issue. Yeah. But, he, yeah, he's, he's, he's odd. He seems to be torn between being quite forward-thinking and then having this a quite chivalrous attitude when it came came to women yeah like they, he wanted them i said he's all for the empowerment of women he obviously isn't all for the empowerment of women but he 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 does fight for certain he picks and chooses women, his battles yeah but he hates the suffragettes yeah. um and is quite acid about them i think a lot of people did at the time i think a lot of people thinking they're all oh, going too far yeah you know. I, I i don't think he he even thought women should vote like it was the man's responsibility to vote on behalf of the household. Yeah. So he w- only wanted them to have enough enough rights to go on being quite nice. Uh, I, I was going to say accessories. That's probably a bit harsh, but mm-hmm. nice, unthreatening wives. But then he also writes the only character to best Sherlock Holmes as a woman. Yeah. Yes, he does. Should we talk about his own wives? Sure. Um, so the first wife, Louise, I think known as Tui. Okay. Was it Lottie or Louise? I can't remember. But she, he has a bunch of children with her and she's quite, she, she follows him around on his travel. He's, he's a constantly, like on his honey, on her, their honeymoon, he abandons her to go and play cricket. That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and they lead that sort of life up until her death from tuberculosis, which he failed to diagnose, even though he's a, he's a doctor. And towards the end of his life, her life, he strikes up a relationship, a platonic relationship, although it's pretty much guaranteed to later not become a platonic relationship, with his second wife, yep. Jean, who is going to uh, be his partner in all the spiritualist stuff of his later yes. life. Shall we get on to the spiritualist stuff? Uh, let me just see if there's any more... Uh, oh, should we just cover the war quickly? Oh yeah, what so he was also involved in World War One. Oh. Um, again, rejected obviously because he's in his fifties now, and so he becomes a doctor, manages to fudge his way through. So he's determined to sign up and help in any way he can. And uh, then I'm assuming, like a lot of other patriots in World War One, returns from the war thinking a lot less highly of. Yeah, he he does write quite honestly about trench yeah. warfare but when he visits the trenches i think quite a lot of stuff is hidden from him okay. so he doesn't quite see what it's like um but he still has all of the uh 19th century ideas of serving country 
True. Um, two extraordinary things from it, though. He, when he sees the German threats looming, he suggests um, that they build a, a tunnel under the channel. And he's respected enough for this to be scheduled to be discussed in uh, Parliament. But it's scheduled for the day after um, Archduke Franz Ferdinand gets assassinated. So it gets cancelled. He he predicts the Channel Tunnel. Yeah. That's really interesting. Not only that, he predicts that Germans are going to use submarines a lot more. Yeah. He's this is sort of poo-pooed. And later, the Germans, when they do launch a series of very successful submarine attacks, mock the English by saying, uh, thank you so much to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for giving us the great idea to um, use, use our submarines, which devastates Arthur Conan Doyle. And he immediately takes to the newspapers to say... Uh, it, Causes me a great deal of pain to think that Jesus, I, I didn't did know that. that. Yeah, which bit were we gonna? Spiritualism. Spiritualism. Yeah. So this is an all, a strange. Well, I think we're getting back to what we talked about earlier about his love of photography. Yeah. Where Conan Doyle, he looked at photography as a way to completely preserve a moment, mm. and I don't think he really thought about it as a way to lie or to mislead. So when he saw the famous pixie picture mm. picture of the fairies in the garden he was completely cottingly sold. fairies yeah yeah but he has a life that builds up to that really where it just it's almost like a returning obsession throughout his life mm-hmm. quite young his uncle richard um dies of apoplexy after having a premonition of his death and painting a watercolor of a, a hay wain littered with corpses Jesus and this kind of Christ. weird sort of slightly spooky stuff just sort of keeps happening to Arthur Conan Doyle and he he gets interested in more and more interested in spiritualism more and more uh, and by the way spiritualism isn't just the sort of vague term oh, no, it is now it's a, it's a movement that starts in 1848 in America where a family called Fox talks to a spirit in their house and well, then the, um, suddenly like it blew up so like six years later there were three million people calling themselves spiritualists well, in, in edinburgh in, USA. in edinburgh there is the arthur conan doyle spiritualism center yeah it's on the other end of princess street i hear it's a riot non-stop parties in there yeah but no it's uh directly opposite directly opposite a big church oh. just kind of sits there it's got a giant painting of him in the window so it's good you can choose like you can you're choose. walking down you're just walking there you're like, oh, see how you're feeling which one am i going to today yeah um and then so a decade later, after it sort of kicked off in the States, it's here as well. Yeah. And it was really, I think, in, in brief, it was, it was the belief that, that the, the spirit went somewhere after you die yeah. and that it's possible to talk to that spirit, so those he, spirits. Let's talk about that time he attempted to summon the spirit of Oscar Wilde. Well, I can't remember. Maybe attempts to summon is putting it a bit strong. Does he say that he contacts him? or? But I, him I, or? it's more that... Um, he he makes contact with a woman at some point who says that she receives what she calls automatic writings yes, from spirits. That's when you're possessed and the spirit writes through your hand. Exactly, yeah. Um, and he's very convinced by her. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think after her death is when he suddenly kind of comes out as a spiritualist. Yeah. Uh, and it's important to remember as well that th- this is all brewing throughout his life and it's a bit of one of those idle hobbies we were talking about earlier. But when... Not, not for him. It wasn't an idle hobby. For him, it was a focused, yeah. hard-working hobby. But it was, it, you could see it in that kind of. Well, this is all very well if you're rich and you've got time to, you know, yeah. think about spiritualism all the time. But after the war, interest in spiritualism rocketed because suddenly there were millions, millions of people who uh, people wanted to contact. Yeah, some, something I wanted to mention when we were talking about spiritualism, though, is that so Conan Doyle is. Most famous for creating a character who relied on cold hard evidence and the eyes and deductive reasoning. The spiritualism never came across in the Sherlock Holmes stories. No. There are things like the Hound of the Baskervilles or people who come to Holmes convinced that there's a ghost. Yeah. And in often in very Scooby Doo fashion, Holmes will reveal the mechanisms behind which these people have been tricked. Yeah. He he did toy with the idea of using because he got really evangelical about spiritualism later yeah. in his life he did toy with the idea of doing a, a spiritualist sherlock holmes story and, and making sherlock holmes a spiritualist but i think the part of him that was quite canny financially thought i'm not going to do that because basically he was getting leathered in the press about yeah. being a spiritualist it would undermine the character as well as but his. every time yeah. he needed a cash injection he could boff off a 
Ooh. Sherlock Holmes story, and then he could fund his next lecture tour as a as a spiritualist. He comes across some interesting characters though. Eva Carrier, who is a medium who was famous for uh, conjuring ectoplasm out of her eyes, mouth, nipples, and vagina. He took a photo of that happening. What um, that is a that is a talent. Yeah, that is a that that is an X Men level I know. mutant ability. So she was very famous, and he was fascinated by ectoplasm. And in fact, there was a, there was a later sci-fi short story oh. where he wrote about matter being transported from one place, destroyed, and then rebuilt in another place. Telepor- and, teleportation. Uh, well, and people have talked, oh, he, he, he did the teleporter from Star Trek. But as Martin Booth says in the biography, it's not that weird a thing for, for him to be talking about, given that he believed in ectoplasm. Yeah. Which was basically the... The, the residue that ghosts leave behind. The sub, well, not leave behind, but the, the substance they use in order to inhabit this plane. Oh, okay. They have to go somewhere, so they, they create ectoplasm. this ectoplasm, yeah. That's interesting. Um, that was the theory, anyway. But, yeah, his, his, his popular reputation declined as he got older. Yeah, and it's quite sad. I think he loses quite a few friends. And, and I mean, his... His attitude is quite bizarre. So shortly after the war, he lost his brother, um, Innes. If you're called I-N-N-E-S, are you called Innes or Inns? I-N-N-E-S is Innes. Innes. Like, yeah. Um, Is that Scottish? Yeah, very Scottish. Like Innes and Gunn? Like Innes and Gunn, but I think Innes and Gunn is with two eyes. Yeah, I thought it was with two eyes. Uh, So he loses his brother Innes, who's really close to, and his son Kingsley, who I think is his favourite son, shortly after the war, both of whom served, but I think... One got influenza, maybe one had wounds. I don't so both know. died as a result of the war? Pretty much. Yeah. But I mean, I, I don't know. One, I think Spanish flu is one of them at least. But um, he doesn't break off his tour for the, for the death of his son and instead talks to him later that afternoon through okay. spiritualism. So he's holding seances. Um, he befriends Harry Houdini uh, at one point. <laughs> And uh, Harry Houdini is a sceptic of spiritualism, being a magician, um, but really likes Arthur Conan Doyle and so agrees to attend a seance with Arthur Conan Doyle and his new wife, Jean, who at this point is not very new, but just in context of how we've talked about it. But yeah, but Jean was a spiritualist. Yeah, and she um, did automatic writing or, or rather spoke as Houdini's mother. And Houdini found it very awkward because his mother would have spoken Hebrew, I think, and she spoke yep. in English and he just said it, just none of it added up. And he had very uncomfortably to tell Arthur Conan Doyle that he thought it was a sham. Yes. So that's different. Like there's a lot of stories of Arthur Conan Doyle seeing things like the ectoplasm lady and being convinced. But this is actually something they're doing. Which is, which is why I think that... It's a progression. In the first Thai place, he, when he saw that fairy photo, that was all he needed to suddenly... Well, that's quite late on. That's in 1920 is when he yeah. sees it. And then he so it's Cottingley. It's actually quite close to where I'm from. It's near Keithley in West Yorkshire. Are you, are, are you a member of the, the Fae, Ash? Are you a- <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they're there. He, he was right. <laughs> but uh, for those unfamiliar with the story, two girls... Very young, like I think younger than 10, I think. One mm-hmm. of them's called Elsie Wright. That's yes, the name I remember. That's the name I remember. Um, took photo, were loved fairies, drew fairies, painted watercolors of fairies, and not meaning to hoodwink anyone, cut out a painting and took some photos with them and yep. sent some very innocuous photo to a friend who, in a, ve- and in a very childlike way, wrote, Here, you know, here's a photo of Dad, here's a photo of the house, here's a photo with me and a couple of fairies, and here's a photo of uh, the garden, or yes. something like that. And then they were found by a spiritualist who went, gosh, we've got proof. Yep. Um, and Arthur Conan Doyle got his hands on them through yep. a series of connections and totally believed in them, and was more mocked for that than any of the other stuff, I yes. think. Well, I think that was the one where it was provably f- fake. Yeah. But yeah, so I think his his career, his he, he was a shooting star and then he faded. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, he, he stayed around for a long, long time. And he, yeah. even when he was being mocked... Um, people were still reading his people stories. People were still reading his stories and, you know, hoping and hoping for more Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, as, as a legacy, mm. as he is remembered... In the modern times, 
most people are surprised when they find out about the spiritualism stuff. He was remembered yeah. entirely in the positive light. Yeah, the literature has definitely triumphed, but it's probably not what he would have wanted. No. Speaking he, of yeah. legacy, though, his house that he died in yeah. was exercised in 1961 because the people living in it thought it was haunted by Arthur Conan Doyle. They kept, kept seeing... Kept seeing ectoplasm everywhere. Well, they kept seeing his ghost, and it was saying, um, I've lost... Uh, I'm looking for a red diary bound with a black elastic for or something God's like sake. that, and members of the Conan Doyle stories, the family said, yeah, he did lose a diary that looked like that. And mm. so he's, he, he would have been happy, I think, with <laughs> that, that little aspect. Of probably his... not so happy about being exercised. No, probably not. Uh, think, well, he did love exercise. Um, <laughs> but I think his, as as us today in the 21st century, Sherlock Holmes is one of the most adapted literary works. I think it's the most. It's adapted every few years. Mm. There's young Sherlock Holmes, there's Sherlock, there's Elementary, there's the Robert Downey Sherlock Holmes, there's the Basil Rathbone TV series. Jeremy... Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner, he's Hawkeye. No, not Jeremy. Jeremy Brett. <laughs> Jeremy Brett. Jeremy Brett. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was the one I liked. Was that, that was the one with um, Sherlock Holmes and the Last Vampire, which mm. I think was written. I think he would have quite enjoyed that one. Uh, he did write one about a vampire, I think. Is that the one? Was it the, the Sussex Vampire? They got more, like, violent and well, supernatural without since, being spiritual. That was something else I wanted to talk about. Ever since Sherlock Holmes left copyright it has become an absolute sensation to add to the Holmes canon. Mm. There are people writing full stories as the policeman from Holmes. There are people writing yeah. from the perspective of the Baker Street Irregulars. There is a full Sherlock Holmes fan fiction community. There is the Sherlock Holmes Society, which is very elitist and exclusive. Yeah, There's the Sherlock Holmes Museum that's in 221B Baker Street. Yeah. I don't think 221B actually it, exists. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't exist. They had to create it. Oh, right. Um, like, yeah. I think the Baker's, the Baker Street tube line station is completely decked out in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. The statues here, the statues in Reichenbach. There are... I don't think any place that he touched in his works has received Sherlock Holmes-related paraphernalia. Yeah. Fully merchandised, fully adapted... It's Pickwick all over again. It's Pickwick all over again, but it's endured. It's endured much more than Pickwick, yeah. Yeah. Um, just a quick list of names of authors he bumped into. Oh, and God. I highly recommend you read a biography of this man. Because is, it, it's is, it, just is this a, like Boswell level? And then he met Voltaire. I think it's a beyond Boswell. Okay. This this is a really, really short list, and I'm not including non-authors, so people like Churchill and um, <laughs> anyone else like that, okay. political or whatever. Um, Let's hear it. H.G. Uh, Wells, Rudyard Kipling, Bran Stoker, George Meredith, Jerome K. Jerome, um, Anthony Hope, who actually gave a really good... Have you read The Prisoner of Zender? I know it, but I've not read it. Because um, I thought it would be a good... Reading this reminded me of uh, The Prisoner of Zender, and I think it might be quite a good... Ear, don't read this for us to do. Okay. Because it's a really rubbish, like, rollicking... Is, it just, is, 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 is this a B-movie in book form? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's awful. Um, But I can't find my... It's quite a good description of just how not writerly Conan Doyle looked. Okay. Uh, Anthony Hope, the author of the 1894 bestseller and um, shit tip, Prisoner (laughs) of Zender, said Conan Doyle looked as if he had never heard of a book. Someone else described him as looking more like a farmer than a writer a police officer than an author. Now in his mid-thirties, he had the vague appearance of a more muscular version of the German Kaiser Wilhelm. Though not fat, his figure was larger than it had been. With the upright stance of a guardsman, he wore his light brown hair trimmed short and moved with precision. His head was large, he sported a thick, somewhat blonde moustache. His large eyes were usually either very active, sparkling with eagerness or fun, or on occasion, fixed with a faraway stare. Looking for fairies. Yeah. But I think think that that list of authors... You've just listed all the authors there that exist. That's Oh, and the big one, sorry, that I was saving, yeah. because this might be someone we just happen to be talking about mm-hmm. soonish, is uh, in 1893, he got a letter from Samoa. Oh, where, who, um, who could be in Samoa? <laughs> where a writer called Robert Louis Stevenson... I don't know who he is. <laughs> also from Edinburgh, also a spiritualist, um, yeah. wrote... Uh, got rich off making lighthouses. Yeah, 
saying he enjoyed one of the, I think it was called The Refugees. Yes. It was a piece of work that Arthur Conan Doyle was very piece disappointed hadn't done better. Yeah. It wasn't Sherlock Holmes, but um, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson enjoyed it. Um, and he also said uh, of the Sherlock Holmes stories, is that my old friend Joe Ball? Uh, Joe Bell. Sorry, Joe Ball. Joe Ball. Um, is that my old friend Joe Bell? Because yeah. he'd also been to Edinburgh University and knew Joseph Bell. Uh, and they, they became friends. Uh, Conan Doyle wanted to go to Samoa, but it never came off. But yeah. when they came, they were strong enough friends for when Stevenson died, he asked Robert Louis Stevenson to finish... Uh, Robert, he asked Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle to finish... Just to summon his spirit and have a conversation. Well, he would have loved that. But to finish the novel he had been working on, St. Ives. But um, Conan Doyle didn't think he was up to it. He was, very, he was very modest about his writing in some ways, but he was also thought he was above criticism. Yeah. It's another contradiction. Well, I think one of the last things we should talk about then is probably... We say one of the last. I've got a bunch on writing here. Okay. Just, just very quickly... One thing I wanted to mention for okay. people who'd listened to the Midsummer Night's Dream podcast and see okay. and seen a Instagram post about Herbert Beerholm Tree, who was a who, ha- who has a name, who is a director and great name and whole excuse for saying this. Uh, he was the man who was approached to put on the first Sherlock Holmes play. Okay, but um, I think was too big of a character, or they clashed about something, and he got rejected. But to give you an idea of how big he was in his own lifetime, Edward the Seventh said Sherlock Holmes was the only fiction he'd read to the end. Oh, that was the other thing. He had not only had experience with photography, which makes the Cottingley Fairies escapade so strange. Yeah. He himself had actually faked photos in order to promote. The Lost World. Really? With dinosaurs? I'm not sure with dinosaurs, but you'd think that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, all, I, all it read was he, you know, made fake photographs to accompany the <sighs> was serialization. Was he just so keen for the spiritualism to be true that he was seeing the things? I think that it's got something to do with his... He was very frightened of becoming mad like his father. Okay. And I think he thought that if he could prove certain... Aspects of spiritualism. He could preemptively go mad. Well, no, I think it, it, it was it was the opposite, really. If he could prove certain aspects of spiritualism true, yeah. then he could persuade himself, at least, that, he wasn't that his father hadn't actually been mad oh. and that he wasn't going to go to mad. So oh, the voices in his father's head were spirits or even fairies, because I think his father was quite big on fairies, too. That would make a lot of sense. So there, there was there's reasons behind his kind of what's seeming blind spot and yeah. all of that. Um, and this is a bit incongruous now, but um, when uh, at bef- just before the war, or maybe during the early years of the war, a German spy was apprehended in in London who'd okay. been operating. His cover was as a broker or something, um, operating under the name Sherlock Holmes. I love that. That's fantastic. So they they both knew him well enough to um, adopt the name, but didn't know him well enough to know that that would stand out. <laughs> I think that in terms of characters that he created while Sherlock Holmes is clearly the one he's most remembered for it's definitely not the one he would have wanted to be remembered for Mm, no yeah I think characters like Challenger like Vern characters that he's almost certainly based off of Mm. were the writing that he actually considered to be legitimate and good yeah I think like you mentioned the Sherlock Holmes stuff was a cash cow yeah when towards the end he was writing them when he needed funds to go do something ridiculous. I think he was quite baffled that, that people like what Sherlock he Holmes considered so much, yeah. his, you know, pulp yeah. was so popular. When I think he wished that his more science and adventure-oriented stuff... And like history, like you said, the historical Brigadier fiction, Gerard, I think yeah. he, he really thought well, he that was He wanted them to be more successful. Yeah. And he I think, he yeah. finished... The, there's a novel called The White Company that he wrote... Okay. And he was convinced that was the best thing he'd done. I didn't know he that. Was, when he wrote it, he thought, I'm never going to top that. That's interesting. And then I think later in life, in one of the episodes where he gets frustrated at someone thinking he is Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes yeah. alone, he says, why, why doesn't anyone talk to me about the writer of this, the writer of yeah. The White Company, the writer of yes. Lost World? But I think that people gravitated towards Sherlock Holmes because he was a strong character. And the mysteries are good mysteries. Yeah. Like even when you compare it to 100 and whatever, 160 years worth of progress in the crime fiction genre, they are still way up there. If you read something like Murder on the Rue Morgue, you can see just how, which is credited to be the first detective fiction story, 
you can see even by Poe. By Poe. Yeah. Which are, he was hugely influenced by yeah, Poe, yeah. Which are roughly contemporaries. Mm. Closer to contemporary than than now. Just how much of a step forward it was in narrative construction and sort of sprinkling enough clues so that you might be able to solve it yourself. All of the elements of good, engaging crime fiction yeah. were already present decades before anyone else was doing it. Mm. I think that's what made them stand out so much. Yeah. Well, he had a packed life and it's he hard. fit a lot in. It's really hard to pack a podcast because there's tons of yeah. interesting little episodes. Well, I feel like we, we've succeeded in telling enough to hopefully get people interested and excited yeah. about him. And I can recommend the book that I've drawn most from, which is The Doctor and the Detective by, yeah. by Martin Booth. There are lots of other Doyle, Conan Doyle rather, yep. um, What's the one I'm thinking of? Arthur and... George. Arthur and George. It's Julian Barnes, yeah. But it is a good... I think that's a very well-researched character piece Yeah. about Conan Doyle as a man. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the stuff I've been talking about is dredged up from my childhood obsessions. But yeah. in recent years, that's what I've read and really enjoyed in relation to, to him. Complicated man. Complicated man, complicated characters. a few books about him. Yeah, I would read books about him and then books by him. You could read a book. You could read books about him that would give you completely different. You could read. I'm sure there'll be books on Conan Doyle, the spiritualist, Conan Doyle, the um, medicine man, Conan, Conan Doyle, Doyle, the amateur detective, explorer, yeah. Conan Doyle, the pugilist. Um, so yeah, uh, that's going, that's about it for us. We will at some point talk about one of his books or more than one of his books. Yeah, maybe. We'll I think do. that crime season is a is a good. I think doing doing a lot of a lot of similar st- sticking to a genre would be fun I yeah think, and getting really into the nitty-gritties of hard-boiled yeah. detective fiction well we know who's going to come up when we start talking hard-boiled yeah um oh um what's his name who wrote maltese falcon yeah him him <laughs> i was team. thinking dashiell hammett dashiell hammett yeah I, cause I don't know who you could possibly that, dashiell hammett is is one of those names that's almost too good to be true like Ryder haggard yeah. <laughs> um cool well that's us then um and that's adam's phone yeah um, i hope you enjoyed our our ramble through the life yeah we might do a couple maze, more of these like i think we've got a couple more um edinburgh authors we might do these from we yeah. might have mentioned one of them and i don't think we're actually even running short of edinburgh authors no we're not no the well the, the, the barrel is still full yeah um but we'll be back with something uh bookish next uh until then see you later see you later <laughs>